It's good to look out at you all this morning. I want to thank Matt for preaching last week. That was quite a good sermon last week. Matt was uh, giving me a week to go away with Shonda for a weekend. We were celebrating our 15th anniversary, which was really, really sweet to even think about. And, uh, and so it, it, being back with you is just a reminder how sweet it is, uh, just the privilege of being a part of this group of Jesus followers. So thank you for that. Uh, I'm also excited to begin opening the book of Exodus with you. We are beginning a new study where we make our way through Exodus, and uh, we're going to look at it. And one of the things I think that you'll find is a familiar pattern that emerges from it. As you watch, uh, God's people move from uh, bondage and oppression to, to freedom, to a relationship with God, to, uh, in, to learning about what it looks like to live in faithfulness to him as they strain toward a land that was promised to him. All of, all of the themes are right there in this timeless story of the, the rhythms and the patterns of the gospel message that's given to us. It's all right there in this timeless story. Now, now why is it timeless? Well, we can start with the, the idea that the Bible treats this as a very timeless story. In fact, that if you read the Bible, you're going to just see countless references in the Old and the New Testament that refer back to this mighty act of God as he rescues his people from out of their oppression, their slavery at the hands of the Egyptians. It's just referred to over and over and over again. It's given to us Uh, with this desire that God's people would always remember uh, what God did uh, in these events. And in fact, Moses wrote it for what we call the second generation Exodus community. So Moses is the principal human character that we're going to see in this story. You're just going to see him. We're going to look at him and talk about him. And uh, he's a character, okay? So we're going to spend some time looking at him that he wrote it And he gave it to what we call the second generation Exodus community. This is the generation that followed those who actually experienced God's rescue. Because he gave it to them because he always wanted them to remember. Why? Because he wanted God's people to have baked into their hardwiring an understanding of who God is. His character that compels him uh, in these ways and who they are because of it. Because the main character of the book of Exodus is not Moses, it's God. It's about his character, it's about his intentions, it's about his power, and it's about his love. It's all right there. We're not going to start in Exodus chapter 1. What we're going to do as a, as a way of kind of introing the book is we're going to jump to Exodus chapter 6, a few verses in Exodus chapter 6. A friend of mine said that these verses uh, feel like what you might read on the cover of the dust jacket on a book, you know, that gives you a little summary of what you're about to read, that these verses serve as a nice intro for what we're going to look at as we look at Exodus, and it'll give us a chance to talk about some of the broad themes that we're going to look at as we study this book together over the next several months. So let's look together. This is Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. This is God speaking to Moses. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, in whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. 
Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, uh, we are grateful for you and we're grateful for each other that we can all be together in this room and to hear these words and that we ask that you yourself would instruct our hearts, challenge us as you see fit, uh, convict us as you see fit, encourage us, comfort us as you see fit. I pray you would do all those things uh, and give us hope. And I pray that you would help me that every word I say to these friends would be uh, in fidelity to your word and that I would honor you with what I'm about to do. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you get together uh, with family or with loved ones or close friends, maybe close friends from some time ago, when you get together, uh, what stories do you tell? I mean, what stories do you tell? Tell stories of, uh, of uh, past stories of joy. Do you tell past stories of sadness? I mean, the story, storytelling uh, seems to be an essential part of any real relationship, any real group of friends, any real tribe, tongue, or nation has stories that they tell. I was thinking back to many of the times I get together with my family and extended family, and boy, we've got some stories. And we tell the good ones and we tell the bad ones. We talk about the time we were hiking. Uh, in Glacier National Park, and we came across a bear, and then we came across another bear, and then a mo- I mean, it just, and the, like the animals keep getting bigger every time we tell that story. And we also tell the story about how we came home from that vacation, and a pipe had burst in our house and just ruined everything. It was the only time I saw my father cry. We tell the good stories, and we tell the bad stories. And everything in between. My grandfather was a great storyteller. He grew up on a farm in North Carolina, seven brothers and sisters, and we've never got sick of telling stories, hearing his stories. The food was always good, but I think it was the stories that held us together. And I would submit to you that that's kind of baked into our hard wiring as people. I came across an article uh, just the other day. It's out of the Atlantic, and it talked about the benefits of family storytelling for little children, children who grow up in families that, that tell these stories. It said there's been a, a canon of research on this subject over the last 30 years, and she says that the children who grow up uh, hearing the stories of where they come from benefit in all kinds of ways. They demonstrate better understanding of other people, their thoughts and emotions, they have higher self-esteem, stronger sense of self, a more robust identity. It even showed lower rates of anxiety and depression, just you know, benefiting from that. It, it, it was all making the point that knowing where we come from helps with wherever we're going. When we look at the book of Exodus, 
we are looking at a story that God told his people to tell each other regularly. It's even installed as a part of their celebration of an annual feast, that they would gather together and remember what God has done. Tell the story to each other again. What happened? This, is, this should be baked in to their hardwiring as God's people. But what kind of story is this? What kind of story? I'm going to make a few points. Uh, three. This is the story of God's character. And it's the story of God's intentions. And finally, it's the story of our frailty. The story of God's character, the story of God's intentions, and the story of our frailty. Let's start with character. Looking at verse 5, you get a glimpse of just some of the fundamental elements that make up some of the basic components of God's character. It begins with God hearing, and then we see that God remembers. God hears, and God remembers. First, God hears. It says, he says, he's speaking, and he says, I have heard the groaning of my people. God has heard the groaning of his people. Now, it, it, it might be, it's kind of hard, actually, to sum up how dramatic this is, that God hears the groanings of his people, that he's even sensitive to them. Uh, often we speak of God as a, as a speaking God, that he offers his words, and we should talk about that. In fact, the story of the Bible begins with God speaking words and speaking the world into existence by the word of his power. His words matter. Uh, We also talk about God as an active God, that he moves through the world with power. I mean, his activity matters. But here what we see is that God isn't just a speaking and acting God, but he's also one who hears He hears the groanings of his people. And that's because hearing is one of the most basic elements in the work of love. This is actually relational, loving language that you see that God actually listens to and hears well from the the groanings of the people that he loves. Uh, How many of you have had this conversation before at some point. It always happens with someone that you love or you expect to love you. You're having an argument, okay? And, uh, and, and you have the sense that whatever you're saying just isn't getting through. And you're, you're saying, I just feel like you're not listening to me. I mean, we've all been there, right? And then they say something like, I am listening to you. I'm sitting right here. And you say, well, I know you're listening, but can you hear me? Can you hear me? What's another way of asking that question? Do you, do you care to understand the basic concerns that I'm bringing to you right now? Do you love me enough to hear that? Hearing is a, is a part of the work of love. And God is saying, I hear my people. I hear every word. And I remember. What does he remember? He says that he remembers his covenant. Now, God remembering is an important phrase in the Bible. Whenever you see that, it usually means that something's about to go down, okay? One of my favorite authors, uh, Western fictional authors, is Louis L'Amour. And whenever you see the phrase, 
and he squared himself up, you know something's about to go down, okay? God remembers is actually one of those phrases in the Bible. It, it means that he's about to do what he promised that he would do, okay? An example is in Genesis 8. If you are familiar with the story of Noah and the flood, right at the beginning of Genesis 8, Noah is on a boat with a bunch of animals and his family. It sounds like a great time. And then it says, and God remembered. That's the precursor to when the flood subsides and the boat lands on dry ground. God remembered means there's going to be a turning point in the story and God is about to do what he said he would do. In this case, it says that he remembers his covenant. Now, what the heck is he talking about here? Verse 8, I will, bring, uh, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are forefathers of God's people. And uh, he had, God has covenant, covenantally bound himself to them to, to bring them into a land that he had promised them. And he's saying that these covenant promises that he gave to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob uh, still persist, that he still intends to make good on this promise. Uh, and here he's saying, I remember what I said, I'm about to do what I said I would do. So God hears the cries of his people and, uh, and he remembers that he has covenantally bound himself to them, both of those things. And what I want you to see here is just how deeply relational both of these things are. I mean, this story is beginning because of God's great care for his people. Because he loves them, he remembers them. Because he loves them, he remembers his covenant. Because he loves them, he hears their cry and is moved by it. And we need to remember this. When we think of God as impersonal or someone that's maybe far away and doesn't care, doesn't care about my groaning, you know, I think it's remarkable that the Psalms are just chock full of, of prayers given to God's people that we could pray back to God. God gives us prayers that we can pray back to God that articulate groaning all the time. And often you'll hear a You'll see a phrase in there that says, uh, are you seeing what's going on down here? <laughs> Do you know that you have the wicked who are flourishing and you have the righteous who are suffering? And often it includes this phrase, hear my cry. Hear, hear, you hear that? Hear my cry. And what God is saying is that I hear your cry. I hear the cries of my people. I remember the promises that I've given to them. And I am about to act. Verses 6 through 8 are an announcement, a declaration of what God will do. These are his intentions. I call them, uh, what does he intend to do? Well, first he intends to reveal himself, to show himself to his people. And you see that because you see at the beginning of verse 8 and at the end of, or sorry, the beginning of verse 6 and at the end of verse 8, you see the phrase, I am the Lord, which, you know, is surrounding these I will statements of what he's about to do. What he's saying is that every, everything that he's about to do is a revelation of who he is. 
And, uh, and it's not just that. In verse 7, you see, uh, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So it's a, he's revealing who he is, and he is uh, making sure that his people specifically know who he is. So he reveals himself, and then his other intention is to rescue his people. Now, uh, you see that in there are seven I will statements. They kind of come at you rapid fire. You see, I will, I will, I will do this, I will do this. You see that? When you look at, when you look at those and you break it down, you actually see a, uh, a wonderful uh, trajectory of redemption being revealed in each one of those as those I will statements progress. Look, look with me here. First he says, um, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. You see that? I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you. Now, that's a loaded word. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. That means by the hand of power is what he's saying. So I will do these things. I'll bring you out. I'll deliver you. I will redeem you. You might call this a commitment to the people's liberation. God is doing for them what they cannot do for themselves. So first you see, the first three, you see liberation. Hang with me on this. And then the next two, you'll see his desire for a relationship with them. Uh, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God, okay? So liberation, relationship. And then the next two are what I would call reward. Uh, Verse eight, I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So it's this pattern, right? Liberation, relationship, and reward. And so here's the point that I'm making to you. You could actually outline, you could outline the book of Exodus with those major themes, that it progresses through each one of them. Uh, The first several chapters are about God liberating his people. He brings them out from their heavy burden and their oppression uh, under Egyptian rule, and then he uh, seals a covenant relationship with them on Mount Sinai. And then from there, the story goes, oh, and, and he gives them the law, and they learn what it looks like to live in faithfulness as those who belong to God as they strain together toward a land that was promised to them and try and kind of sort, sort all that out together. I mean, that, that's exactly what we'll see is this trajectory of redemption that is working its way out from liberation to relationship to reward. And and you might be sitting there saying, you know, that's great, Charles. That's great. That's a great story. Uh, I've seen the Prince of Egypt. Uh, uh, Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments was awesome. But why does this matter to me? Uh, why, why should what happened then apply now to my everyday? I'll give you two reasons. Well, first, because this story, this family story that God's people tell, them, tell each other through the years is your story too. If you belong to God through Christ, through faith in Christ, this is your story. This is your heritage. These are your people. In 1 Peter, it's remarkable. In 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter appropriates words from Exodus 19. When God is speaking to his people in Exodus 19, he calls them a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. 
And in 1 Peter, Peter appropriates those words for his own people. He says, these words are your words. The story is your story. Just as Israel belonged to God through faith, so do you. Here's the other reason. When you look at this trajectory of redemption, you actually see the same pattern working itself out in the life and ministry and continued rule of Jesus Christ himself. I mean, the Bible talks all the time about how Jesus comes to set his people free. It it uses like liberty language, uh, captivity and freedom language surround what he does for his people all the time. In fact, Jesus himself said, I have come to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Uh, In Revelation, we see that he freed us from our sins. See that language, freedom? He freed us from our sins by the power of his blood. And so one of the things that we learn as we look uh, at the Bible is that, you know, it is very honest about what we face in day-to-day life. It talks, it it does talk about worldly powers. It does talk about, um, it does talk about our struggle against those who would oppress. It does talk about those things. But the Bible also says that one of our our, uh, one of our most difficult struggles is our struggle with our own sin, that we need to be set free, not just from the penalty that our sin against God requires, but the power of it, that, that as it works itself out in our hearts for our own harm and for the harm of those around us, that we, we need to be set free from the oppression of sin. And Jesus, the remarkable thing is that Jesus comes not to spill the blood of others for the, for the saving of his people, but he spills his own blood because he is at, at work for the liberty of his people. We also see in Jesus' story that he is like the agent of our relationship with God. He is the one through whom we, we find a, uh, a right and renewed relationship with the Lord. In John 17, he was praying with his disciples before his crucifixion. This is remarkable. And one of the things that he prayed, he said, I, I pray that they will know that you, our Father, loves them as much as you love me. And through Jesus, we enter into right relationship with God. Liberation, relationship, and then reward. Second Corinthians tells us that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. You see that the trajectory of redemption that, that is traced through Jesus' life matches wonderfully with the trajectory of redemption we're going to read about in the Exodus story. It's like it's laying the seeds. It's showing us God's heart, what he does, how he works to save his people. Like so many stories in the Old Testament, what it is doing, it is speaking to us of the mission of Jesus before his name is even mentioned. And so that's why we look at it. It's because it points us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus. If I could put it this way, this might be a little risky, but I'm going to try it. In Exodus, we read God saying, I will. And in Jesus, we hear God saying, I have. 
Now, it's my experience that uh, anytime we're faced with the generosity of another person toward ourselves, it's hard for us to receive it. Unilateral gift giving is not something that we're good at. Uh, I uh, remember one time I got a, a, a present from a friend. He sent me a package, and all it, all it <laughs> this guy's a joker, but he sent me a cup that uh, was from a stadium because there was an athlete that played for the Philadelphia Eagles with the name Charles Johnson, and he saw it, and he sent it to me and said, I hope you enjoy your cup. And I immediately, like when I receive it, I immediately think I got to figure something out. Like, how am I going to match this gift, right? What's the question we ask? Like, what, what is, if he's going to give us all of this, if he's doing all the work and he's not asking anything from us, then what's my role? What is, what, what is this saying about who we are? What's he asking for? I think that what you're going to see when we look at Exodus is we're going to see kind of unblushing, uh, unvarnished explanations about the root, about some of the roots of human frailty. And we're going to be able to look at God's people and we're going to understand their frailty. We're going to be able to identify with it. This is a story as much about God's character and his intentions. It also talks about the frailty of the people that he's, that he's seeking to save. And you get a glimpse of it here in uh, verse nine. It says, uh, God gives all these words to Moses. Moses gives these words to the people, which is his fundamental, one of his fundamental jobs. Uh, And it says, they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. You know, it's not lost on me that, uh, that's not the right way to say it. Um, uh, I I, I hope that you will never hear any kind of politicking coming out from behind this music stand pulpit, okay? None of that. You won't hear like a political stance or anything like that. Uh, It shouldn't be pushing you in that direction. But we've got to be able to talk honestly about the effects of living through another election year together, okay? During a, a, a year of, of heightened political discourse, if you could call it that, operates on our hearts in some way, and we've got to be able to deal with that. Uh, there's a pastor, some of you know him, a guy named George Robertson. He is somebody that Shonda and I have a lot of affection for. He was, he, he was actually part of our wedding, which was 15 years ago, by the way. Um, uh, and so we, he means a lot to us, and we listen to his sermons sometimes. Shonda listens to his sermons a lot whenever I preach a really bad one, and she needs like to compensate. <laughs> this is what he said. A few, this was just a few weeks ago in a sermon. He said that every four years, he dreads election year every four years, because that's the year that it seems like Christians just lose their mind. And forget that God is sovereign. Now, I, I, have not, I have not encountered that amongst you, but if that's at work in your heart, please come talk to me. Like, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about that. But I do think there's something else that happens to us during this time. And it happens, it happens over the years of disappointments and broken promises 
when we watch people on a debate stage talking about what they will do, right? One will say, I will do this, and it's a one-upping back and forth. I will do this, and then they'll say, well, what you're trying to do isn't going to work. They attack each other's I wills, and they make bigger I wills, and it just goes back and forth. And you can just feel your, it's almost involuntary. I mean, you can just feel your eyes start rolling, you know, like we can become calcified against hope. And we can become callous to the I wills that come to us from positions of power. If that is a familiar, if that is at all familiar to you, if that's a familiar caution of the heart, then I would propose that you are just beginning to understand where these people might be coming from in this passage. Generations of slavery. I, I wonder about how many times they might have thought uh, with some kind of hope or expectation or freedom or how many broken promises they might have felt or, you know, I just wonder about that. But you're going to see this story in God's people over and over and over again, that, that their enslavement and their impression made it very hard for them to trust And listen, that is what God is asking for. He is asking them to trust him. He he is reassured. This is not the first time that God makes these declarations and promises to his people through Moses. this This whole thing is him reassuring them and saying, I'm coming to fight for you. You can trust me. You can trust me. Just trust me. And the people find that very, very hard. In fact, nobody, nobody in this story really escapes criticism in this book. Uh, Moses certainly doesn't escape, escape criticism. I mean, there are going to be several stories where he, he's like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. There are, here are all the reasons you shouldn't have asked me to do this job. And the people don't escape criticism. I mean, that sometimes their cynicism just looks ugly. Pharaoh doesn't escape criticism. I mean, for, for a man who's so powerful, he often looks awfully weak. In fact, there are times where he's going to uh, look weak while he's trying not to appear weak in front of his people. I mean, nobody, ex- nobody escapes criticism in this book. And let me just ask you, what do you make of that? What do you make of a nation that chooses to continue to tell stories about all the ways that they've blown it over the years. What do you make of that? You know, it occurs to me that when we gather as a family and start telling stories, sometimes it's as much about the stories we don't tell as it is about the stories we do. Because we got stories we don't tell, don't we? Difficult stories, stories where we've blown it, stories where we're embarrassed, stories where we've failed, stories where somebody else in the family has let us down. I mean, stories we, stories we do not tell. Every church, every institution, every family, every person has stories like that they don't tell. And yet for some reason, Moses is not quite as discreet as we are, even a little bit. Why? Because every story we tell, every story he tells about human brokenness and frailty and the reluctance to trust 
Every story he tells about unfounded doubt and difficulty and strain is further evidence. It's further evidence of how deep the grace of God runs for his people that he loves every single time. We're going to read stories like this, this story right here comes after Moses comes to Moses comes and needs reassurance and uh, and God what's God doing? He's talking to he's telling him again what he will do. He's just reminding them. Often we'll see stories where God just continues to bear with his people, continuing over and over and over again. That's why I included the story about doubting Thomas with Jesus in the order of worship, because look at, look at how Jesus treats Thomas when he doubts. Like there's a mild rebuke in there, but he's overwhelming in kindness. Like he's like, come here, Thomas, feel my wounds. Be reassured. This is true. I am resurrected. Because it shows us God's disposition toward his people and his character. When we make little of ourselves, which is what we see here, what are they doing? They're making much, much of God. Let me ask you, any chance you're feeling frail at all this morning? Or or maybe discouraged? Or maybe cynical? Or maybe just weak? Any chance you're feeling that? Then I would tell you this story is for you. It's a reminder that you have a place in God's people and here in the story. Because what kind of story is it? It's a story about his character and it's a story about his intentions. But it is overwhelmingly a story of the way God's grace works itself out in the most difficult spaces. A grace that moves our affections and stokes our appetite for the grace of Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Father, what grace you give to us, you give to your people. Would you preserve us in that grace? Would you hold us? Help us to trust it. Help us to see it. I pray you would be generous as you always have been with us as we uh, hear this word and then turn to your table where your, grace, where your grace is evidenced again before us. Help us in all of these things, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.